0: Luke, chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. and Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I am going to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I have married a wife. Therefore, I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would reach us through your word, that by the power of your Spirit, you would draw us ever closer to your Son. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. This time of year, it is especially natural to ask questions about Jesus. And perhaps the most common question at this time of year is to ask others and to ask ourselves, why did Jesus come? Why did our Lord Jesus Christ come and become a man and dwell among men here on our earth? Well, for some, the answer is easy. Jesus came here to be an example of how we should be good and kind to each other and fill us with the Christmas spirit that somehow will make everything better for at least two and a half weeks. For others, there is a deeper, more theological answer that Jesus has come to solve the problem of our sin. We who could not save ourselves need Jesus to come and to resolve the threat of hell and damnation. Well deserved for our sin. But I think there is even an expanded view upon this question that we need to be aware of. Because you see, Jesus is not simply a means to an end. Jesus did not come just to do things for us. Jesus came and dwelled among men that we might be fashioned into his image. In short, Jesus has come that we might be changed from the inside out. Jesus has come to make us different in every way, to view the world differently. And the more and more we do that, the more and more we become like Jesus. And so there are three stories, if you will, within our passage this morning of three ways in which Jesus, our King, changes things. The first thing that we see is that the King changes how we view ourselves. We get a true view of who we are and what our need is. The second thing is that the King changes how we view others, that we cannot simply look at other people as somehow props in our play. And the third and final thing is that the king changes how we view his kingdom itself. That we only have a proper view of God's kingdom if we learn from and follow Jesus. Well, let's begin then by looking here at chapter 14 and verse 7 and see how the king changes how we view ourselves. Now, this is still happening at the same dinner that we were looking at last week. A dinner in which Jesus was invited when the ruler of the Pharisees, or a ruler of the Pharisees, perhaps best described for us to think of as the wealthiest, most religious man in town, holds a dinner party. And he invites all sorts of guests including Jesus, and as we saw last week, he invites Jesus to lay a trap for him. And Jesus has been focusing his attention on the Pharisees and that trap, but now he shifts, he redirects his attention to the rest of the crowd. I think this is important for us to see because so often when we see Jesus, especially when we see Jesus challenging people in the Bible, it is easy for us to look at the people so challenged as being in another category from us. Oh, he's after the Pharisee. I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. Let me stand back and watch Jesus go at it. But you see here, we see Jesus talking to the rest of the crowd He's really talking to people like you, like me. And he's been watching them as the dinner is about to begin. He's been watching them jockey for position around the table. Now, imagine, if you will, the table is set up probably in a giant U with the host right at the center And the best seats would be those right near the host. That was how you could get to talk to the host all evening. And others would look and wish they were where you were. They'd be jealous of you. They'd want to be near the host, and they'd have to think, He must be so special. Oh, she must be so great to be able to sit near the host. So you can imagine what this would look like people would shift their conversations to be subtly near the best chairs. Someone might walk up and ask the host or one of the host's servants, oh, this chair here, oh, it's lovely, I love the fabric. Where did you get that? And they're all, as it were, just waiting for the Palestinian adult version of musical chairs to stop. You see, as soon as the host says, let's sit, then you can almost imagine in your mind's eye them diving for the chairs to be able to get the best spots. And Jesus sees this. But more than seeing this, Jesus knows their hearts. We might ask ourselves, what causes this kind of competition for chairs? Is it is it just bad manners? Is this something that mismanners could fix? She could tell people where they should sit just as easily as she tells us how many forks we should use and in what order. No, this is really not about manners. What this is really about is something that bites much closer to you and me. This is about a way of thinking that says, the world revolves around me. What I think is important is supremely important. Everyone else, take a step back. Because what's really important is what I care about. Now, lest you push this off and say, well, I've never elbowed someone out of the way in order to sit in a certain chair. And I don't ever compete where to sit. I want you to think about how difficult this is, how subtle this type of sinful thinking is. It's something that happens every single day in our homes. Perhaps you've heard something like this. Well, why did my brother get four cookies? And I only got three. How come I don't have four? Well, how come he gets to drive the car at age 17 and I had to wait till I age 18? You know, my girlfriend got brand new appliances for the kitchen this year. How come she has them and I don't? I can't believe I only got a 4% raise when the guy down the hall got 6%. You see, this way of thinking puts everything in a perspective around us. It's our grades, it's our job, it's our possessions, it's our things that really matter. And as we look around, we want to be sure that we are at the head of the class, that we have the things that we need. This is a mark of sinful pride. It comes naturally to us. You don't have to tell a toddler, do you? to complain about getting their fair share of something. It's instantly available to them. It's as if somehow they'd taken a graduate level course on it. You see, this is something that is bound up in our sinful hearts. We're always concerned about how we look before others. We're concerned that others see us and see the best and think the best of us and actually would be quite jealous To be us. And it's this kind of thinking that can even twist good and godly things. We determine to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But really there's a part of us that's just as happy that other people are jealous of us and our children than we are of trying to raise them in a godly fashion. We memorize scripture even. And there's a part of us that's secretly satisfied that others are impressed with our prowess. You see, this is such an easy sin to fall into. It is so easy to excuse in our lives. We're deserving of things. We've worked hard for things. We've sacrificed for others. We deserve what we want. But Jesus sees this. He sees this kind of pride in something as mundane as where you're going to sit for a free, beautiful dinner. Imagine that. That's what they're fighting over. But Jesus does more than just see this. Jesus wants to fix this, to change this. He wants to change that part of us that so longs to be prideful and to count upon ourselves. And Jesus does this by bringing humility to us. He gives us a warning. Do you see this here? Jesus says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And then, the host will come up to you and he will say you need to move along this seat is for someone else now imagine what this looks like in your mind's eye you're at a dinner and lo and behold you are able to grab the musical chair you're sitting in one of the best spots you're looking around you're beaming everyone else is jealous of me Look at how good I am. Look at how good I have things. Oh, this is so wonderful. I am so glad every eye is on me. And then the host comes up to you. He comes up to you as people are sitting. And what are they doing? They're filling in all of the other places. And the host comes up and he says, I'm sorry, but this is reserved for my other guest. You'll need to find another seat. Imagine what kind of a walk of shame that would be. You can almost picture it in your mind, can't you? Your face turning bright red. Now you can't stand the fact that every eye is on you. You get up and you go and you move and where do you have to sit? Well, all of the seats are taken except the worst. You see, in your pride and self-confidence, you have debased yourself. Seeking to lift yourself up, you're now humbled. This is the warning that Jesus gives to us. He says we have to give some thought. We ought not to be worried about placing ourselves above others. And he also gives some encouragement as well. Do you see what he says? He says what you ought to do is go sit at the lowest place at the table. Because then what will happen is the host will come up to you and say, Friend, no, please come up to a better place. There will be no walk of shame there. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is not Jesus giving tricks to a dinner party. He is not giving you just some form of trick that you could pull out of your pocket every time you go out to be sure you get a high place at the meal. No, there's far more than that going on. What Jesus is doing is not thinking about etiquette. What Jesus is doing is encouraging you to change your way of thinking about yourself. To understand that principle that he articulates in verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's telling you, you need to put others before yourself. That's what's important. He's showing you a spiritual reality. He's actually showing you what his life's mission and purpose is. After all, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He humbled himself beyond anything you and I could imagine. He took on flesh. The eternal Son of God, the creator of everything that is, became created. He who wrote the law was made under the law. And He didn't just come as a strapping man, a leader of men, a king of kings. No, He came as a babe in a manger. So weak, so frail, couldn't feed himself. He couldn't clean himself. And then he lived amongst sinners. Think about day after day, the assault that it must have been upon our Lord Jesus' nature for others to wrong him, to see injustice in the world, to see others with carelessness, to see others mock his heavenly Father. Then he went to the depths of humility. He who is life died. Died the most shameful death that is imaginable. He humbled himself to the sacrifice of the cross. But it was through that sacrifice, it was through that humbling, that he became the greatest. That his name was on high. He was risen from the dead, he was ascended to the Father, and he waits now to gather each and every one of his people and to be worshiped forever and ever. Our Lord Jesus Christ put back at his rightful place after having fulfilled everything that the Father has asked of him. He was humbled for a purpose to be raised to glory. And you see, if we do not understand this principle, we don't understand Jesus. Because if we think we have it together, if we think we are better than we are, then we don't need Jesus. We're just fine. Thank you very much. We're going along very well. The house is clean. There's money in the bank. We don't need God. We don't need forgiveness. We don't need Jesus. We have everything we think in ourselves. And those who exalt themselves in that way, who come before the throne of God, before the judgment seat of Almighty, and when He says, why should you be spared and enter into rest? And when we say, well, Lord, we did a pretty good job. We were nice to people. I thought good thoughts and I think I deserve it, then in that day you will be humbled beyond anything you can imagine. You see, the principle of life is that we ought not exalt ourselves, but we ought to humble ourselves that God may exalt us in due time. This is a great danger for us living here in this place and at this time. We think so much of ourselves because we're Americans. We think so much of ourselves Theologically, because we have it in tune. We can point all around us to every other kind of person who is lost, who doesn't have a clue, and we can think that it is what we are and what we have done that gives us worth. But the gospel tells us something else. That it is what God has done. And it is having a true knowledge of our own sin and a true knowledge of the great majesty of God that humbles us. The second thing we see that our king does is he changes how we view others. You see, it's not just about how we look at ourselves. It's also about how we look at others. We have another kind of natural tendency. It's a natural tendency to self-interest. Again, you don't need to teach people to look out for number one, do you? We're always on the lookout for our interests. Jesus describes this here in verses 12 through 14. He said to the man who had invited him, he turns back to the ruler of the Pharisees and he says, you know, when you host a dinner, don't have friends, family, rich neighbors, people who can repay you later. Don't think of the world just in terms of what you can get back out of it. Don't think of situations and people just as to how they affect you. And again, this is an ordinary situation. It should be very disconcerting to us that Jesus is calling out a sin that is something that we experience all the time. He's not saying don't murder people and chop them up into little bits. I don't plan on doing that this week. He's not saying, don't blow up large buildings. He's saying, don't look at other people only for what they can give to you. Don't set up situations where you give to others and then wait for the turnaround. This is, again, something that we can fall prey to each and every day. Have you asked yourself, who do you have relationships with? Today. Are they just with people that can provide things for you? Now, I'm not saying you, you wouldn't like these people, but it just so happens that they provide a benefit to you, that they're, they're friends that have skills that you can use. They're people who compliment you. Or do you go out of your way, out of your comfort zone, to build relationships with people who have no ability, none at all, to reciprocate? You see, Jesus here is, is getting our attention. This is so far from the meek and mild Jesus. Think of what Jesus is doing here. First, he's telling everyone where to sit, and then he's telling people who they can invite to the party. And he really is, if I can say this, going over the top rhetorically to make a point. Because we can't take what Jesus says here in verses 12 and 13 as an absolute. I'm not saying to you, Everyone cancel your Christmas Eve and Christmas plans. Family that are in town, go home. You can't have dinner with your family. No inviting friends and neighbors over. Jesus said so. No. Now, how can we know that's not the level of absolute? Well, because Jesus ate with his family. Jesus ate with his friends. So what Jesus is saying here is not about your dinner card. What Jesus is saying here is that you have to think long and hard about how you view other people. Are they a means to an end? Do they help you to feel better about yourself because you think you're doing a good turn? You see, this is what we naturally gravitate toward. We naturally gravitate toward what we think will benefit us. But Jesus looks at this completely differently. Jesus brings generosity to the table, as it were. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind, and then you will be blessed because they can't repay you. You will be blessed at the resurrection by my Father. Jesus is calling us today to a new way of thinking. Do not ask yourself, What can I get from them? Ask yourself. Can I give without getting back? You see, Jesus is focusing us on people and on people who are not like us. They are outside of our community. This is an awkward and unnatural thing. Think about this. Imagine if... Around the Christmas feast with the table set perfectly with linen and with the silver and the china and the chafing dishes and all of the food spread out and ready to go. Imagine if as you sat down to the meal, you brought in someone who was homeless and who stank. And who made a mess when he ate. That would be quite awkward, wouldn't it? It would be difficult to think about. Why would I do something like this? He obviously doesn't have anything to give or to share. Jesus wants us to think about others the way he thinks about us. He wants us to think about others and serve others the same way that he served. You know, it's not a coincidence that when Jesus tells us to invite those sorts of people, they're the exact same type of people Jesus says he has come to serve in Luke chapter 7 and verse 22. The poor, the blind, the lame. Jesus wants us to be generous We are called to generosity so that we can help others. We are called to generosity so that we can look beyond ourselves. But most importantly, we are called to generosity so we can understand God's salvation. Because it is indeed that act of generosity that makes it possible for us to know the living God, that makes it possible for us to be free from the power of sin, that makes it possible for us to be free from the penalty of sin. God doesn't owe us anything. We can't contribute anything. And yet He looks upon us. And in generosity, He sends His Son that we might know the riches of His table. It is not required for salvation prior to think generously. But the one who has trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knows him by faith, the one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will reveal the authenticity of his faith by his generosity toward others. Jesus changes the way we look at ourselves. He changes the way we look at others. And thirdly and finally, he changes how we view his kingdom. We've seen that we have a natural sense of pride. We have a natural sense of self-interest. And we also have a natural disinterest about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 15. Jesus has just given some sharp words. And you can imagine what the dinner conversation is like. Maybe you've had one of these dinners where there's been loud talking and laughter and someone says something that stops everything and no one's sure when they can talk again. And so you could just imagine, what would you do in this awkward pause? Well, one man has the answer. He thinks the answer is to yell out something that's a truism that everyone will believe. He says, Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Yeah, Jesus, I know you're talking about the poor and the lame, but everyone will be blessed who eats at the feast of God. By the way... That includes me and my buddy over here. We're going to the kingdom of God. We're going to eat the meal. Right? Can I get an amen? That's what he's, he's looking around waiting for an amen. Jesus understands what he's doing here. Jesus has challenged their assumptions. He has challenged them to change. And now someone is trying to shift the emphasis away from that, to shift their attention away from that. There's an assumption that's going on here that he will be fine, that so will his friends. And he is trying to blunt the call of the kingdom. So Jesus brings up another parable. He begins to speak a parable to them. Now, I could imagine that if we were with Jesus and seeing others, that as soon as we saw or heard the word parable, we might dunk. Because that pretty much means Jesus is going to let us have it. He's going to come up with something that really hits close to home. And he does that here. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is ready. Now, you have to understand how invitations were done in this day and age. You would send a formal invitation to someone and they would accept it would be sort of like our RSVP. And then the day of the banquet, when you had all of the invitations in, you would know exactly how many animals to kill for the meal. You would know exactly how many places to set. Then you would send out your servant and tell people it's time. Back in this day, they didn't have microwaves. They had to know when the food was going to be hot. And so you'd send someone out again. Now... You've already said yes once. In this culture, about the most rude thing you could possibly do is say yes, let your host go to all of that trouble, and then at the end say, well, you know, not so much. Got something else to do. Imagine if you will, if this were the case. Imagine you invited your neighbors over for dinner. And they all told you that they were going to come. And you prepared... A great feast. You made sure you had enough pounds of meat for everyone and all of the right sides and enough desserts. And someone comes just as the meal is about to begin and they knock on the door and right before they come in they say, Oh, sorry, I forgot I got to wash my hair. I can't come. And they walk away. Well, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's about as ridiculous as what they say here. One man says, oh, I would love to be able to come. I can't come because I have just bought a field and I need to inspect it. Seriously? How many of you all buy a house before you even take a look at it? That's completely impractical. It's actually meant to be impractical. And the second thing that comes up, oh, I would come, but I have just bought ten oxen. Five team of oxen. And I have to go and see them. Now, think about this. The normal, well-off landowner would have two oxen. This man needs ten. And he doesn't even know if they're alive and breathing. He's got to go look at them after he's bought them. No, what's going on here is he's showing, I'm not interested in the banquet. I'm not interested in you, master. I've got other things to do. The third man says, He doesn't even offer an excuse. He says, I'm married. I can't come. Really? Maybe you ought to go just to give your new wife a break from you. Because that's about as rude as it gets. You said you were going to come. Now remember, that's the context. This is not a surprise. They've already been invited. They've already said they're going to come. And then they are too focused on something else. They have no time for the feast. They have time for other things, for their own possessions, for their own relationships. Does that sound like something that might happen to you and me? You know, the call for the kingdom comes. Are we focused upon it? Or do we have all sorts of other things that keep us busy? You see, Jesus is making a theological point here. He's actually directing this directly at people like you and me. He's directing it at the Israelites. He's saying, I've already given you my covenant promises. I've already given you my sacraments. I've already given you my word. I've already given you my prophets. You know this. You have accepted it. And now, in the person of Jesus Christ, I am here again calling you to the kingdom. And now you say, Oh. I'm busy. You're sitting here this morning. You have God's word. A great many of you have been blessed with baptism. You are amongst God's people. You have already received and are firmly in possession of the first invitation. Do you dare reject the second? For you see what happens... There's a great warning. Jesus says, the kingdom is not dependent on you. You see, sometimes we think of the kingdom as something that we get, that we need, that is a reward to us. Jesus says, I'm not going to postpone the banquet. I'm not going to reschedule it. He says, go out and get the poor and the lame and the blind And when there's not enough of them, there's still room. There's still a wideness in God's mercy that he goes out into the byways. He'll go out to the Gentiles. He'll go out to those who did not grow up in the church. He'll go out to those who have lived lives of misery and sin. And he will bring them to the table. And he will change them forever. This is more than just a simple call. There is still room at the feast this morning. Do you know that? That no matter what you have done, there is still room for you. And do you know this with such a passion and fervor that you go out and tell others that there is still room at the feast? Do you call others to the banquet? There's a warning that comes to us. The invitation... Is not what matters. It's the response to the summons. Today, Jesus is come. The feast is set. The invitations are out. Will you come? Are you changed so by the person and work of Jesus? That you renounce all pride, you renounce all self-interest, you renounce all self-direction, and you come to the King. This is why Jesus came. He came that you would come. Let's pray.